0: If you find anything helpful in this uh, particular message, the uh, manuscript, uh, the outline uh, is being posted at uh, danielaiken.com and you're certainly free to go there and if you find something valuable, uh, use it in any way that you wish. Uh, also at the uh, end of the manuscript you'll find 12 marks of integrity. Uh, that I listed from uh, Richard Baxter's classic book, The Reformed Pastor. You find this in the early part of his book. Uh, I don't have uh, any illusions that I will have time to get there in what I want to say from Psalm 101, but just would note that at the end of the manuscript, you'll find those 12 outstanding principles enumerated by uh, Baxter. And and then let me say this. I went to this passage uh, both out of a burden uh, and a uh, heartbrokenness because of the way so many view the ministry today. And uh, I recognize that uh, part of the problem with the way people see the ministry today is the ministry, uh, is us. Uh, and therefore, we can uh, bemoan the fact, but we should also, I think, be willing to take responsibility as well. And so Psalm 101, I find in it 12 marks. Of a wise and trustworthy leader. So, hear the reading of the word of the Lord. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music, or perhaps better, I will sing. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. In December of last year, Gallup released their annual survey on how Americans see the various professions in terms of their honesty and their ethics. Pastors did crack the top ten, coming in at number eight, sandwiched between college teachers and chiropractors. (laughs) Unfortunately, only 44% of Americans view the clergy as high or very high in terms of their honesty and their ethical standards. 2016 indeed marked another year in what has become now a steady decline in terms of the respect that Americans have for the clergy. Their clergy rate in terms of its approval dropped below the 50% mark in 2013. Last year it was down to 44%, the lowest approval rating for ministers since Gallup began asking the question 50 years ago in 1967. I think there is little question that honesty, integrity, ethics is an essential foundation for faithful, long-term leadership, regardless of the profession or occupation. In fact, in a survey survey by Robert Half Management Resources, seventy-five percent of employees said, hands down, no debate, integrity was the most important attribute in a leader, far more than fairness far more than decisiveness, far more than strategic mindset. And, of course, we know that the Bible holds in high regard and lifts very high the necessity of integrity as simply the way of life of a follower of Jesus Christ. Proverbs ten nine: The one who lives with integrity lives securely. But whoever perverts his way will be found out. Proverbs eleven three. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the perversity of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs thirteen six, righteousness guards people of integrity, but wickedness undermines the sinner. Proverbs twenty eight verse six better the poor person who lives with integrity than the rich one who distorts right and wrong. And of course, those of us who occupy the office of the elder, uh, of the pastor, of the overseer, know very well 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, where we are reminded that the man of God must be above reproach. And Titus 1, 6 adds that the man of God must be blameless. Psalm 101 is a particular psalm that speaks to the necessity of integrity for the leader. In this context, of course, it was written by King David and it speaks to the necessity of integrity in the life of a king. And yet these eight verses highlight not only the necessary characteristics of a king, I think they indeed articulate for us the necessary characteristics of any person called to a position of leadership within the community of faith. Warren Wearsby says Psalm 101 is leadership 101. And William Van Gimmeren says it addresses a commitment to excellence. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote an exposition of this psalm, and he took 80 pages to do so. It is, of course, a royal psalm of the king. And the qualities that we find in these eight verses also find an echo in the messianic passage of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Of course, I believe both of these in some way are portraits of Messiah Jesus. You see, only Jesus, our Savior, can perfectly fulfill the awesome expectations of the leader described in this psalm. And that's why Alan Ross well says, and I quote, What the psalm adds up to is a description of the ideal king. For none of the kings of Israel were able to live up to this. But as a royal psalm, the description also looks ahead to the ideal king who will reign with righteousness, the promised Messiah himself. And so what I want to do is just a little Bible walking this afternoon and simply move through these eight verses. And as I do, highlight for us 12 marks of what I would call a wise and trustworthy leader. Number one, the man of God will praise the Lord for his goodness. Verse one. You'll notice as we go through the psalm, the phrase, I will, occurs again and again and again. Verse 1 contains two of these I will statements, beginning the psalm, both on a note of praise and a note of joyful gladness. Twice David says, I will, I will. And what will David do? He says, I will sing, first of all, of the Lord's steadfast love, his hesed, And secondly, I will sing of the Lord's justice. Indeed, to you, O Lord. And the ESV says, I will make music. But the parallelism is very clear in the Hebrew text. I will sing. And so David says he can sing first of the Lord's faithful love. And he also says he can sing of the Lord's justice. I believe he begins the psalm this way because these are twin towers of leadership that we must always keep together. They indeed provide an essential foundation for our own leadership. John Calvin well said, To sing therefore of mercy or faithful love and of judgment or justice is equivalent to declaring in solemn terms that he would be a just and he would be an upright king. In other words, steadfast love says we will act faithfully. We will act mercifully, graciously in covenantal love within the community of faith. Justice says we will act righteously and we will act fairly and we will celebrate and sing of these perfections as we see them in our God, but then we will also pursue them as essential qualities in our own lives as faithful leaders in covenant with God's people. Spurgeon said it this way, he sings best, who works best, for the Lord, and our work for the Lord then should be characterized both by hesed, by covenant, steadfast love, and it should also be characterized by justice. Number two, the man of God will also walk in the way of integrity. Praise for our Lord's faithful love and justice should find a companion in our commitment to live and also to act toward others in faithful love. And justice, thus David will say in verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. The Holman Christian Standard, the Christian Standard Bible says, I will pay attention to the way of integrity. Actually, you find the idea or the word itself, integrity, three times in this passage of Scripture. The uh, ESV translates it blameless, but it is, again, the same Hebrew word in all three instances, and I think better translated by the word integrity. Furthermore, you could translate the first part of verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. You could translate it, I will pay attention, and what will I pay attention to? I will pay attention to the way of integrity in other words the wise and trustworthy leader is a psalm 1 kind of man he is a first timothy 3 1 through 7 kind of man he is above reproach uh, he is blameless in his conduct uh, as psalm 1 teaches us he does not listen to the counsel or the advice of the wicked but his delight is in the teachings of the lord and this is what he thinks on And this is what he meditates on. In other words, this man lives wisely with a healthy transparency. Uh, He avoids the places of evil. He says no to the things that can enslave him or cause others to stumble. There's no dishonesty. uh, There's no duplicity. There's no foolishness or compromise in this man. Uh, His public life and his private life are in sync. In fact, when only God is watching... He is the same man as if 10,000 were looking on. My friend Sam Storm says it well, the only reason integrity should be a burden to you is if you enjoy being dishonest. The man of God will walk in the way of integrity. Number three, the man of God will continually acknowledge his utter dependence on the Lord. Verse two, verse 2 contains a, a very brief but a very explosive prayer. He just simply says, when will you come to me? Spurgeon uh, called it a, a devout ejaculation. It is a humble and seer acknowledgment of our need for the Lord's presence. It isn't interesting what he prays for. He does not ask God to give him something. He asks God to give him Someone. He asked God, God, give me yourself. I cannot be this kind of leader without your help, without your aid, without your assistance. I need you to live a life of integrity. I need you to lead well. And of course, there is an obvious implication from this. It's possible to lead the Lord's work, but to do it without the Lord. And it's possible to lead the Lord's work, And be a leader who is a fool because you try to do it in your own strength and not in the strength and power of an intimate, close relationship with Jesus Christ. My good friend Johnny Hunt says, wise leaders will always stay close and clean, close to Jesus and clean as a result. And I think that he's exactly right. And so in this context, we're reminded that to lead well, we must pray well. And as we pray well, I think we will be enlightened as to what our strengths are, but also we will be given insight as to what our weaknesses are as well. And this, again, will drive us to utter dependence upon the Lord for any true and genuine and lasting success in our ministry. The great prayer warrior Oswald Sanders said, and I quote, the spiritual leader should outpace the rest of the church above all in prayer. Prayer is indeed the Christian's vital breath and native air. And Pastor D. Duke would say almost everyone believes that prayer is important, but there is a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing that it is essential. Essential means there are some things that will not happen without prayer. No, the man of God will continually acknowledge his utter dependence upon the Lord. Number four, the man of God will guard his heart as he leads his home. In verse two, David identifies a specific area where integrity is essential for spiritual leadership. The ESV says, my house, I think the idea is the home. In other words, David says a leader must live with a heart of integrity, but that heart of integrity should first manifest itself in the home. Again, we find this same theme in the pastoral epistles when Paul talks about the qualifications of the man of God in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where he writes, that is the pastor, the elder, the overseer, he must manage his own household competently well. And he must have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? James Boyce, many years the pastor of 10th Street Presbyterian, said, The only way to lead a blameless life is to have a blameless heart. Thus the man of God will order well his private world. His life of integrity will be most evident to those who are closest to him. To be specific, he will maintain his fidelity and his faithfulness to his mate with whom he entered into a sacred and divine covenant before God in marriage. He will love and care for his children, bringing them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. He will avoid like a deadly infectious virus. The flirtatious and home-destroying woman of Proverbs 5. But let me quickly add, that flirtatious, home-destroying woman can only appeal to a man with wandering eyes and an impure heart. We too often want to cast the blame upon her when in actuality the blame lies upon the man that was walking where he ought not to walk and looking in a way that he ought not to look. The Bible's very clear that no area is more important for you and to me that we maintain a healthy relationship with our mate that thereby pushes to the sideline and kicks to the curb and gets off the playing field any possibility or potential for unfaithfulness that will undo our ministry. Randy Alcorn, in an article several years ago, put it so very well, and I quote, "'Whenever I feel particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation,' I find it helpful to review what effects my action could have, grieving the Lord who redeemed me, dragging his sacred name through the mud, one day having to look at Jesus, the righteous judge in the face, and give an account of my actions, following the footsteps of people whose immorality forfeited their ministries and caused me to shudder. Losing my wife's respect and trust, hurting my daughters, destroying my example and credibility with my children, causing shame to my family, losing self-respect, forming memories and flashbacks that could plague future intimacy with my wife, wasting years of ministry training, undermining the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in our community, and on and on and on leadership magazine reported some years ago that 77% of all ministers admitted to doing something sexually inappropriate with women other than their wives at some time in their lives 12% one in eight acknowledged sexual relations with someone other than their wives while in the ministry wise and godly leaders David says, will care for their home and they will care for their home by tending to their heart. They will not ignore their heart nor their mate. They will not ignore their heart nor their children. They will not take their family for granted. They will live with a heart of integrity with those who are closest to them and with those who know them best. Number five. The man of God will keep his eyes from anything that is worthless. David writes in verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that has its source in Belial. That is the literal Hebrew for the word translated worthless. In other words, David says, I will not put a worthless thing in front of my eyes. The word anything speaks of the absolute. And the comprehensive nature of this commitment and this conviction. Anything worthless, anything vile, anything wicked, I will not set before my eyes. Why? Because David knows the intimate relationship that exists between the eyes and the heart. And thinking about what we just read, I could not help but be reminded of the wisdom of Job in chapter 31 and verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look inappropriately at a young woman? No, I will remember the counsel of Proverbs when it comes to the importance of my eyes. Proverbs 17, 24, wisdom is the focus of the perceptive. But a fool's eyes roam to the ends of the earth. The Bible says, do not put before your eyes anything that is worthless. And of course, to counter that is that we put before our eyes that which is worthy, that which is right and good. Again, I think Hebrews 12 helps us here, does it not? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's where our gaze should be directed. Number six, the man of God will hate what is wrong, and he will not let it get a hold on him. Having nothing evil before his eyes, a wise and trustworthy leader will hate the work of those who, the text says, fall away, those who walk away from the truth. David says, literally, as it's translated in the Christian Standard Bible, I will hate the practice of transgression. Again, the ESV translates it, I will hate the work of those who fall away. In other words, the wise leader will maintain his personal purity in part by hating and not tolerating evil. And Alan Ross again points out that the word transgressions carries the idea of falling away of doing apostasies, of committing acts of unfaithfulness. Now, if he has people in mind, and he certainly is not excluding them, then David is saying, I will not put faithless people on my team. I don't care how charismatic they are. I don't care how gifted they are. I don't care how much talent they have, they will not be welcomed in my world. They will not cling to me. In other words, their unfaithfulness to the things of God as an ongoing lifestyle is a disqualifying disqualifying marker for them to have any close, intimate relationship with me. Spurgeon is right. Hatred of sin is a good sentinel for the door of virtue. David says the man of God will hate what is wrong and will not let it get a hold of him. Number seven, the man of God will not welcome evil persons into his inner circle. Verse four, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Now, I think it vitally important for us to be reminded again this afternoon of how crucial it is that as leaders, we have a good, healthy, biblical theology of the heart. A good, healthy, biblical theology of the heart. And especially as we would consider those that we might invite into our inner circle of influence— and our inner circle of leadership. Thus, we need to recall Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, 10, God create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of life. Proverbs 10:8, a wise heart accepts commands, but foolish lips will be destroyed. Proverbs 16, 23. The heart of a wise person instructs his mouth. It adds learning to his speech. Proverbs 27:19, as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. And then the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 12 and verse 34, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. David says a godly leader must hate the practice of transgression and not allow it to cling to him, verse 3. He now says in verse 4 that a godly leader will not come close to a devious, to a perverse heart. It will be far from me, he says. Indeed, he goes on to declare, I will not be involved with evil. Now notice the order. David begins with himself, but he also speaks concerning those he would consider for his inner circle as his close confidants. And once more, integrity is crucially important all the way around. A devious or perverse heart is a twisted heart. Its affections are warped. The choices it makes will inevitably be evil. And so David admonishes us very strongly not to let such people, if I can use a modern-day analogy, do not let such people own your bus. But if by chance you make a mistake and you let them own your bus, you have to have the convictions, you have to have the courage to kick them off. They're not reliable. They're not trustworthy. They will harm the church. They will infect negatively the morale and spirituality of your fellowship. Now, I know it's a secular book, But I would still commend to all of you this afternoon the book by Jim Collins entitled Good to Great, especially in the area of just common grace and common sense wisdom of how to build a good team. And of course, in that book, he says many, many good things. But the thing that has stuck with me the most since reading the book is that good leaders work very hard to get the right people on the bus and the right people in the right seat, and to get the wrong people off the bus. He goes on to say, when in doubt about hiring somebody, don't. When in doubt, don't. And I would even go so far as to say this. When you can't find the right person, wait. And wait, and wait, and wait until you do find the right person. Because if you pull the trigger and hire the wrong person, you haven't solved anything, you compounded your problem. So much better to wait longer for the right person and to make the right call than to act prematurely, hire the wrong person and make the wrong call. He makes the statement, the old adage, people are your most important asset is wrong. People are not your most important asset, the right people are are your most important asset. And Charles Spurgeon said it well, the need for extreme care, there is the need for extreme care in the choice of our intimates. And I have no doubt that Spurgeon is correct in that wisdom and that counsel. We all know this afternoon, do we not, that the people that we surround ourselves with can make us or they can break us. So David would say, first of all, you Be the right person. And then David says, secondly, make sure you pursue the right person. Number eight, the man of God will give no place to slander or to gossip. Verse 5 is stated in very strong and direct terms. We need to remind ourselves, both with verse 5 and verse 8, of the poetic nature of the psalm that we are reading. It will help us in terms of a balanced hermeneutic. David says, "'Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy.'" In other words, a godly leader, as verse 4 tells us, will not be involved with evil. Now he makes a very specific application. I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. Uh, The message paraphrases it this way. I will put a gag on the gossip who bad mouths his neighbors. And Alec Motter says, one covertly slandering associates, him I will exterminate. In other words, a secret slanderer is an evil gossip. And he is an evil gossip who spreads lies. He's a whisperer of untruth. He has an agenda, all right, but his agenda is to build himself up and tear others down. And he doesn't care to what lengths he has to go to tear other people down. He'll not stop. Uh, He'll not be bothered by truth or reality. His goal is simply to get his way. And it doesn't matter who gets knocked down. Doesn't matter who gets trampled. Doesn't matter whether it has anything to do with truth at all. And he does not mind making false accusations to destroy and ruin someone's reputation. Calvin said it this way, a slanderer is like one who administers poison to his unsuspecting victim. He destroys men unawares. And Proverbs 12:22 reminds us, lying lips are detestable to the Lord. And Proverbs 10 18 says, Whoever spreads slander is a fool. And Leviticus 19 16 adds, You must not go about spreading slander among your people. You must not jeopardize your neighbor's life. And the philosopher Socrates said, When the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. Samuel Johnson said, Slander is the revenge of a coward. And so I would just say as we close this point, wise leaders will not run with cowards and wise leaders will not run with losers. They will reject liars. They will separate themselves from gossips. They will have absolutely nothing to do with slanderers. Number nine, the man of God will seek out the humble and not the prideful. He'll seek out the humble and not prideful the prideful. There's a threefold criteria set in negative categories in verse 5. He speaks of a slanderer. He speaks of one with haughty eyes. And he speaks of one with an arrogant heart. And by way of application, verse the order and note the connection. An arrogant heart will lead to haughty eyes or an arrogant swagger. And that then will give way to a lying tongue. So the heart gives way to the eyes which gives way eventually to the tongue and once more david says the godly leader will not tolerate this first in himself but he will also not tolerate it in others he will walk with integrity and at the same time seek out the same in others he will silence slanderers he will refuse to run with the prideful and the arrogant He will set them aside uh, to negate their cancerous influence in the community of God's people. You see, haughty eyes are simply the outward expression of an arrogant heart. And arrogant and ambitious people are notorious for looking down on others and oozing what I call an air of superiority. Of course, we all know, do we not, that the opposite of pride is humility. Something that the world may despise, but something that God prizes and extols very high. That's why Oswald Sanders again says humility is the hallmark of the spiritual leader. And of course, we should be honest with ourselves this afternoon and note that very few of us like coming in second. And very few of us aspire to be runner-up in any race or any contest. And so, again, the question is, what is the cure? And the answer is a proper evaluation of ourselves in light of having and cultivating, I believe, the mind of Christ. That's why I always love to read whenever I do a wedding ceremony, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I always point out that the mind of Christ is essential, I think, to having a growing and fulfilling and meaningful uh, relationship within the context of marriage. But I also remind them, if you want to know what the mind of Christ is by way of illustration, uh, look at verses 6 through 8. But if you want to know what the mind of Christ is by way of explanation, look at verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, he should also look out for the interests of others. And Burke tomorrow will unwrap for us First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which right there in the middle in verses 5 and 6, you hear this wisdom from the apostle. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders... All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. I share with you three, I think, striking quotes about humility. C.S. Lewis, I think, was right. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. John Flavel adds... They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. And Augustine said, If you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay deep foundations of humility. Number 10, the man of God will look to surround himself with people who are faithful and have integrity. Verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me he who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me one of my spiritual heroes is the man adrian rogers for many years he was the pastor of the bellevue baptist church in memphis tennessee and a three-time president uh, of the southern baptist convention Uh, i did not agree with him at every point of theology though i agreed with most of his theology But the fact of the matter is, to be honest with you, we would not even be having this conference today if it were not for his influence and impact in turning Southern Baptists back to their historical roots in affirmation of an infallible and inerrant Bible. He was a fountain of wisdom, and I heard him say on more than one occasion, A leaders hire A people, but B leaders hire C people. Now, just think about that for a moment. A leaders hire A people. B leaders hire and surround themselves with C people. David says, I think, very much the same in this verse. He says the man of God will be on the lookout for particular persons for his team." He says, to be specific, my eyes will favor, will look toward the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me, so that they may be in close proximity to me. Then in typical Hebrew parallelism, he adds, I'm looking for the one who follows the way of integrity, the blameless man. I'm looking for the faithful, the one who may serve with me as he sits down with me. In other words, verse 6 stands in stark contrast to verse 5. Furthermore, it picks up again the theme of the eyes that we saw in verse 3 and verse 5. There he said, I will not allow anything worthless before my eyes, and I will not surround myself with those who have haughty eyes, but I will seek out with my eyes the faithful and those who have integrity. Now he didn't use this uh, particular uh, analogy in his talk earlier this morning, but I like what Mark said very much. I, I personally, uh, and I always have felt this way, I despise with a uh, with a passion I cannot put into words the beauty contest and the horse race strategy of finding a pastor. I think it's stupid. I think it's dumb. I think people get hurt. I think it's ridiculous. I don't like it. (laughs) I much prefer the draft model. In other words, this is how I've always operated all of my life, and I have found it to work really quite well. I operate from the assumption, using my analogy, that I have the first pick in the first round. And if I had the first pick in the first round, given all sorts of circumstances that I'm going to consider, and again, I love the idea that we ought not to steal good pastors from their churches. I think that is a brilliant insight, and we should be ashamed of ourselves for acting that kind of way. That's the way of the world, not the way of the Spirit. All right, but considering all of those things, if I had the first pick in the first round, who would I go after? Well, if I can't get the first pick in the first round, then what will I do? I will go after the second pick in the first round. If I don't get that person, well, then I'll go after the third person. But I'm not going to engage in a beauty contest. I'm not going to take an approach that looks very much like a horse race because I just don't think, first of all, it's godly. And I don't even think it's wise. I know in my own life that uh, several years ago when I was invited to come and I sensed God's leading to go to Southern Seminary, I sat down with Al Mohler, uh over dinner in Louisville one Sunday night. And uh, he said, well, I want to talk to you about the possibility of you coming here and being the uh, academic vice president and the dean of our school of theology. And I said, well, I'm I'm even honored that you would ask, though I don't really think this is what I'm supposed to do, but God had a different plan in mind. But as we were talking, I said, well, who else are you talking to? Just if, I mean, how many people are you considering? And uh, he said, "Uh, I'm just considering you. And I was really kind of taken back by that because that's not the way people normally do something. And so I said, you don't have any other names? He said, no. When I... uh, was informed that David Dockery was going to be leaving to go be president of Union University, I sat down and I wrote down three names. And I, to this day, do not know who the other two names were. He said, I wrote down three names, I prayed over it for a while, and then I prioritized the names, and for whatever reason, your name was at the top of the list. And I decided, well, I'll go after Danny until it's either yes or no, If it's yes, I've got my person. If it's no, then I'll move to number two. I personally just think that's a really helpful, wise way to go about looking for good people that you want to surround yourself with as you build a godly band of brothers to assist you in doing the work of the ministry. And so I think this is a valuable way to go, and I think you look for certain kinds of people. He tells us there at the end of verse 6 that he is looking for people who walk in the way that is blameless, who walk in the way of integrity. And then look at the very last phrase of verse 6. He's looking for people that shall minister to me. It could be translated, that shall serve me. In other words, I think we want to set our eyes on what we Normally and and regularly referred to, but need to take to heart. We need to set our eyes on servant leaders. We need to set our eyes on leaders who have a servant's heart. We need to look for men who do not expect or ask of others what they do not expect or ask of themselves. And so, just to be very practical for a moment in my own life, again, this is what I do. I, I look for men in particular who have worked somewhere as a janitor or a custodian. In fact, if I were king of the world, everybody would spend six months working as a janitor or a custodian or a waiter or a waitress. You'll treat people differently if you've had that particular occupation. I look for people who are generous and kind to the waiters and waitresses in a restaurant. If I go out to eat with you and you act like a jerk, hell will freeze over before I would hire you. Because if you will be a jerk to someone in that context, you'll be jerked to other... Well, you are a jerk. And you need to <laughs> repent and get right with God. But I pay attention. And I also pay attention, if you happen to be the one paying the bill, what kind of tip you leave as well. Because that will also tell me a lot about your heart and about your character and about your generosity. I look for men who gladly give attention to children and to the elderly. I look for men who are gracious to those who can do absolutely nothing to further their agenda. I look for men who treat others like they are the most important person in the world at that particular moment. I mentioned a moment ago my hero, Adrian Rogers. When I had uh, come to Southeastern as president in 2004, In the spring of 2005, we were putting our chapel schedule together for our annual trustee meeting week. We have our trustee meeting on a Monday and a Tuesday. We invite in what now we call our Southeastern Society. These are men and women that love us and support us financially. It's a really exciting time on campus. We commission our missionaries that are gonna go around the world, especially through our two plus two missions program. And on this particular Tuesday, Uh, I had lined up to preach in chapel, David Jeremiah. Now, David Jeremiah is very well-known and very beloved in the North Carolina area. In fact, the number one giving state to his uh, television ministry is North Carolina, Not, not California, North Carolina. Well, on Saturday, before he was to come on Tuesday, I received a phone call from his secretary informing me that he was canceling. And that he was not going to be able to be here. Now, you need to understand something. We probably had 50 churches bringing their, I think, every senior adult within 100 miles of this <laughs> campus was coming to be in chapel that day. Because they love David Jeremiah. And now he's not coming. And so I was in a pinch. And by God's good grace, I won't go into all the details, I was able to get Dr. Rogers to come and fill in. Adrian Rogers came to pinch hit for David Jeremiah and just was kind and gracious. So he came that morning and he preached, did a wonderful job. And when chapel was in place, was packed to the, I mean, they were on the walls, in the back, down the center aisle, just people everywhere. When it was over with, I said to Dr. Rogers, I said, look, I, we're not gonna go to the back and shake hands. And I don't even want you to go down on the lower floor and shake hands because I just know how people are. We, we, we have people that are socially unaware they are they are they are socially insensitive and they don't realize that when there's a line of 50 people you ought to have enough sense to say thank you good message and you move your buns on but no you have people that that just they they don't they don't they think they're the only one there to talk to you so anyway I said you just stay up here on the platform If they really want to talk to you, they'll come up here and they'll talk to you. And then we'll go to lunch and and, and I'll take you and Miss Joyce back to our house to rest before you fly home. And chapel ended that day about 11 o'clock. At 1145, there was a line halfway down this aisle here with people. He's standing right here, people shaking his hand. 45 minutes. There's still 30 people in line. So I went over to his wife, and I said, "Miss Rogers, would you go get Adrian? And she said to me, if you want him, you go get him. I'm I'm not going anywhere. Now, I didn't pay attention. I I didn't pay attention. I just heard her say, well, I don't feel like doing it. So I said, fine, I'll do it. So I walked over. He's standing right here. I walk up, I take him by his right arm with my left hand, and I said, Dr. Rogers, he turned and looked at me, and if I am embellishing this one wit, may God strike me dead for lying. He looked at me, and in that deep, booming, baritone voice of his, he said, Little Danny, (laughs) when I am ready to go, I'll let you know. And with all of my masculine fervor, I said, okay. <laughs> so I went back over by Miss Rogers, and I sat down, and she said, I, I warned you. <laughs> At 12.15, 12.15, The last person in line was a little gray headed lady, probably in her 80s. She had waited for an hour and 15 minutes. He didn't wait, he walked down when he saw her. And I walked up to him because I knew that it would be time to go ahead and get him to to move on. And he walked down to her, and I'll never forget, she looked at him and she said, I have listened to you preach for years. I never thought I'd get to meet you. And I'd just like to touch your cheek. And she put her hand up on his cheek. He put his hand over hers, bent over, hugged her, and kissed her on her forehead. She turned and walked away. He looked at me and he said, now we can go. I've never forgotten that. This is a man who is known all around the world. This is a man who pastored a church that ran 8,000 every Sunday. This is the man that was like, we called him playfully the godfather of the SBC. And yet he was not too big or too important to treat everybody like they were the most important person in the world. And it just reminded me, I should never get so big in my estimation of myself that I can't treat other people like I myself would wanna be treated. Number 11, and I'll hasten, no man or the man of God will have nothing to do with liars and the dishonest. He says there in verse seven, no one who practises deceit shall dwell in my house and no one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. The language is clearly cast in the language of the king and his court, but the application is really easy to make for those of us called to leadership. Verse 5, we're told we must confront and deal decisively with slanderers and the arrogant. Now in verse 7, we are told we must do the same with those who act deceitfully and those who tell lies. David says, they are not welcome in my house. They will not live in my palace. I will not receive their counsel. They will not be retained to guide me. In other words, David says, I am a character inspector, and I am looking for those who are dishonest and destructive, those who are deceitful and deceptive, and I will not give them a seat at my table of leadership. They will not be granted access to the leader's court. They are dishonest and they're unfaithful, they're hypocritical, they're liars, they're gossips, they're disruptive, and I will not welcome them into my council." Again, Calvin makes a direct application to those called to leadership. And he says this, a wise leader, he will exercise discretion and care that instead of taking persons into his service indiscriminately, he may wisely determine each man's character so as to have those who live a life of strict integrity as his most intimate friends. In other words, it really does matter, the Bible says, who we hang out with. It really does matter who we listen to. They are certain to influence who we are and how we live. And Spurgeon, again, in his uh, incredible artistic way, says it so plainly, if David would not have a liar in his sight, much less will the Lord. Neither he that loves nor he who makes a lie shall be admitted into heaven. Liars are obnoxious enough on earth. The saints shall not be worried with them in another world. (laughs) The man of God indeed will have nothing to do with liars and the dishonest. And then number 12. The man of God will not grow weary in the battles of good and evil. Verse 8, morning by morning, which is when judgment usually took place in the ancient world, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, folks, we need to remind ourselves this uh, afternoon as we move to close this session, you and I as followers of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. The victory has already been won. The war has been won. And yet, even though the war has been won, there are still battles to fight until that day. And the Bible tells us that wise and godly leaders will be vigilant in that fight, recognizing that as God's army rangers and God's navy seals, if I might use those images, we must not grow weary in well Now, again, the language in verse 8 is very strong, and it would certainly have one application for a political leader like a king in Israel, but it would have a different kind of application for you and me as spiritual leaders in the house of God. Let me be specific. The man of God then, in a position of spiritual leadership, will confront evil. He will confront wickedness, and he will do so head on, and he will do so day in and day out. If God will not tolerate evil, then neither can we who have been called to lead and shepherd his people. To pick up on the biblical metaphors, we will be on guard against the dogs and the pigs and the wolves of Scripture. We will protect the flock of God. and At the same time, we will be willing to sound a prophetic voice against evil whenever and wherever we see it. We will play neither the coward on the one hand or the hireling on the other. And as faithful servants of King Jesus, we will recognize that we need to permeate our churches as well as our culture with a Christian witness. To say it as it is said almost this way in the Baptist faith and message, living out the kingdom ethics of Scripture, we will be salt and light to a wicked and darkened world. We will share and show forth the gospel. In light of this, we will oppose racism, bigotry, greed, selfishness, all forms of sexual immorality and pornography. Uh, We talked about this briefly uh, earlier today, and I'll just make a passing comment. Uh, We'll not condemn a Hugh Hefner for his sexual immorality and give someone that's very much like him a pass. We will not condemn. Play the hypocrite as evangelical, Bible believing Christians. We will speak the truth to anyone and everyone and let the chips fall where they may. We will stand for what is right and we will do so with conviction and compassion, with courage, and we will not be moved. We will indeed be willing and gladly so to help the orphan, help the needy, help the immigrant, help the abused, help the aged, help the helpless. We will contend for the sanctity of life, all human life, from conception to natural death. And again, to close and be very precise, the man of God cares not who is in the White House or who is in Congress. He doesn't care whether it's a Democrat, whether it's a Republican, whether it's a Libertarian, an Independent, or whatever. Why? Because our allegiance is to a king and not a president. And our hope is in Calvary's hill, not Capitol Hill. We will always say evil is evil. Wrong is wrong. And when we see it, we cannot help but speak against it and act against it as well. No, the man of God is indeed going to lead both by example and by precept. He will lead with his life and also with his voice. Bottom line is this. A cynical, skeptical world is watching us and watching us very carefully. Let them see men of integrity. Let them see wise and trustworthy leaders. Let them see men who faithfully follow in the footsteps of the master. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it presents before us and to us. Lord, indeed, never has there been a time, at least in our nation and in the Western world, where integrity in ministry has been at a higher premium. Lord, because of scandal after scandal after scandal, we are so often today held in derision and disrespect because of an increasing secularity in our culture. We are no longer looked upon as men worthy of even being listened to. But Lord, ultimately, we don't have to please the world. We have to please you. And Lord, if we will please you, we will be amazed at how you will use our witness for good and use our witness for your glory and use our witness as well as our proclamation of your word to extend your gospel across North America and around the world Lord I would ask with all of my heart that I indeed would walk as a man of integrity until the day that you take me home Lord I want you to again uh, impress upon my heart the truth it is one thing to start well it's another thing to serve well for a season but it's something altogether different to finish well Lord, by your grace and for your glory, may we be men and women who finish well and hear from our Savior in heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.